So good luck with that one, Andrew. I'm sure it'll be great. Uh, Like Stephen said earlier, my name is Jared. I am one of the newer staff members here along with Andrew. I'm the guy that does the fancy plugging into the wires thing. Uh, Also almost forgot to turn on my mic this morning, so it shows you how great that is. Um, No, uh, I am, like you said, over some of the pipeline stuff and over some of our leadership development uh, and very excited to get into that. And part of that is being that I get to come up here and preach, uh, which I'm very excited to do this morning. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, I go ahead and Open that up to Exodus chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 1 through 19. Uh, Just as we continue looking through Exodus, if you haven't been with us, we're just in a very slow series. We're going to go through the whole book of Exodus verse by verse, just so that we don't miss anything important uh, that God has said. And so this morning we find ourselves in the second and the third plagues. Uh, We're going to learn about frogs and we're going to learn about gnats. And I'm excited to preach this because a couple of weeks ago I was up here uh, and kind of mentioned the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And at the time, it was kind of a cop-out. He didn't give an answer then. It was just, uh, pay attention, we'll talk about this later. So I'm excited that this morning we actually get to talk about it and get to jump into some of these things. So I'll go ahead and read Exodus and we'll pray and then we'll we'll get into it. So chapter 8, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make the frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts, and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me, from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people, and they shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with a staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this gathering that you have, you have brought us to and for your word that you have given us. And I pray that just out of it this morning that you will show us who you are and what we are to understand and know about you in light of the plagues. 
Father, I thank you for all of this again, and I praise your name. Amen. So immediately, uh, last week we were in the first plague, this week we're in the second and third plague. So a few things to remember about the plagues in general. Uh, And if you weren't here last week, you can go back and listen to Stephen. We've got it posted. He did a great job on talking about the Nile. Um, But the first few things we want to remember about the plagues is, one, uh, God softens hearts. He softens the hearts of Aaron and Moses so that they would believe in obedient to be God's instructions. Uh, and this draws a separation between Moses and Aaron and Israel and Egypt and Pharaoh that we, we start to see that as Pharaoh and Egypt are disobedient and all the things, as they harden their hearts and turn away, uh, Moses and Aaron are, t- Aaron are turned towards God. And the second one, and this is really the big point of the plagues, uh, that there is no one like God. He is the Almighty. He is God over everything. And he wants to make himself known. And this is mentioned several times throughout the plagues. And uh, six out of the ten plagues, uh, he mentions something along the lines of, so that you will know that I am Yahweh, that there is no one like the Lord our God. And that he wants... Egypt to know who he is. And the plagues are God wanting to make himself known to them. And third, uh, that God showed Pharaoh who he is. He showed Pharaoh uh, who God is and what that means and the power. Uh, But still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened to this. And now there is a big caveat with this. Uh, We must know that the only way that we can have a softened heart, the only way that we can respond rightly to God is through grace. It is through the grace that God gives us uh, through faith, through Christ, uh, that we can come to know him. That is the only way that we can have a softened heart. Uh, Romans 9.18 puts it this way, so then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And this is just important to remember as we jump into the plagues, uh, that God is the one that provides these things. That even though he didn't have to, even though he was right and just in letting us being turned over to his wrath and in judgment, he anyway sent his son to die so that we can live. Now, if these points sound familiar at all, it's because Stephen hit them on last week. Uh, I'm sorry, we read through the same commentaries, but it is remembered to important, it is very important to remember these points uh, as we go through all the plagues. So last week as we started looking at the plagues or the strikes, uh, we, we noticed and we pointed out that these are not random acts of chaos. These aren't just random acts of judgment that God just kind of rolls a dice and says, all right, this week we've got frogs and gnats. Perfect. Let's roll it out on the Egyptians. That'll teach them. No, this is specific acts of judgment against Egypt, and more importantly, it's against their, their gods, the gods of Egypt. Now, in these days, Egypt was seen as the powerhouse of the ancient world. Uh, if... if God showed that he was over, that he was uh, more powerful, that he was able to do these things over the Egyptian gods, then really that he shows that he is over all the nations of the earth. He is over all the nations' God. He is better than all these other false gods, little g, little gods. Uh, So in each plague that we see, God is striking specific Egyptian gods in order to judge them, to judge Egypt, and to show Pharaoh in Egypt that he is the one true God. So last week, Stephen pointed out, uh, we talked about the God Happy, um, God of the Nile, God of fertility, which if you look in the Egyptian pantheon, half the gods are the gods of fertility and the other half are death. It really shows the importance that they think is there. It's living or dying. That's it. Nothing in between. So it's kind of funny. And this week, when we look at two more gods, well, we'll run through them real quick because we didn't come here to learn about them. Uh, we've, the first one we've got is Heket. Uh, this is the god of fertility again, uh, the frog of, or the god, goddess of childbearing. Um, 
and it, she was typically depicted as a frog. Uh, and so it was thought that Hiket could control the frog population. She would kind of keep Egypt safe from the frogs, keep them safe from being swarmed by frogs. So by God swarming Egypt with frogs, he is showing that he is better than Hiket. He is higher, he is more powerful, he is the one true God over this Egyptian god. And so he's challenging this power here and showing Egypt and Pharaoh who they really should look to. And an interesting thing about Hiket is that when you look at the, the creation mythology of Egypt, they saw that she was the one that breathed life into man. It's very similar to what we see in Genesis 2, that man was formed out of mud, he was formed out of dirt, out of the dust, and, and as he was formed on this potter's wheel type thing, Hiket would breathe life into the people. And so here, by God striking Hiket, showing his dominion over these frogs, he is showing that he is the one that breathes life into people. He is telling Egypt and telling Pharaoh, uh, it is not Hiket that you must depend on for your vitality, for your life, for your children, but it is me. It is Yahweh is the one who provides and breathes into them. And then the second God we see, little God, is Geb. Uh, and Geb was credited with creating the world. He is creating with creating the land, earth, mountains, canyons, you have it. Uh, but the idea of who Geb is and how he did this really strikes at the heart of idolatry and how we can understand it. So the Egyptians, uh, they believed that Geb did not create the earth as Yahweh did, where God spoke into creation all things. They believed that Geb merely laid down and became the earth and that this is uh, who they worship. And this really is very interesting because it puts Geb and dirt on the same level the same person, the same guy. And so we see that Egypt, they had, uh, set, they had substituted the God of creation, a God that could be known, a God that could be worshipped, uh, our God, for this God that was simply becoming the earth. And this shows uh, God's power and how much better he is than, than Geb and all these idols that Egypt had created. Because while one was the earth, one created the earth. Um, and we also see this power over creation played out in the plagues uh, where uh, Aaron strikes the ground, all the dust become gnats. This is really a miraculous thing that happens. Uh, a lot of times if you watch movies or uh, some more secular worldviews of the plagues, they try to list it all out to natural disasters, things that happened. The, the Nile got bloody and all the fish died, so all the frogs came up, and then there was gnats because there was a bunch of dead frogs. But this isn't what happened. This isn't what we see in the plagues. Uh, we see that God did something miraculous and showed his power by taking the dust, creating uh, gnats, completely new thing that's living, that's moving, that's flying and buzzing out of the other thing. But enough about these guys. We did not come this morning. We didn't come and gather to learn about Egyptology. We came to know God. We came to worship God. So we will move on. So like I mentioned earlier, the plagues uh, are important so that we know that Yahweh is God of the land. So with it, we may know who he is and what he wants to show us. And so out of the plagues, we see a lot of his different characteristics, some of his nature coming out in them. So the first two that we see is wrath and love. It's kind of weird to talk about these two things together, but it's important to see them together so that we know how they interact. And we, more importantly, we see what Pharaoh was um, exposed to, what Pharaoh saw, what he knew. So wrath from God is a good response to injustice. It is a loving response to his people, Israel. That when God is wrathful against Egypt and judgment and these things. He is being loving towards Israel. 
Uh, one way to think about it, if I was taking Tori, my wife, if I was taking her out to dinner and we were walking around the square, uh, going to Spirits or wherever, uh, and some guy just walks up to her and just hits her. That is, if I were to respond like, eh, whatever, sorry she was in your way, my guy, and just move on, that is not a very loving response to my wife. If I want to be loving to my wife, i got to fight this guy, which I'm not sure, if, am I allowed to fight people now? Probably not. But anyway... That is the right response if I truly love my wife, for me to be angry, for me to be wrathful, uh, for me to respond in a way that it's like, hey, you're not going to hit my woman. And that is a, what we see here coming out of God and for Israel. Uh, God says that he loves his people. If we look back at Egypt, Exodus 6, he says that I will be your God and you will be my people. And so if we are truly to see the love of God for Israel, he must be wrathful. If, he is, if, if a nation such as Egypt is to commit genocide and uh, the killing of infant babies like we saw at the beginning by throwing them in the Nile, uh, then God must be wrathful in his response. If he is not, then he is not loving towards Israel. Another characteristic that we see is the mercy of God. Now, this doesn't show up very plainly in the plagues, and it says kind of weird to bring that up because it's obviously he's striking them, uh, but I think it comes up very well in the frog plague. So looking at verses 10 through 13, and he said, tomorrow, and Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people, and they shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. Now, like we said, there's no doubt that Egypt deserved the plagues. They deserved the strikes. If we look back at chapter 6 and 7, we see that they were warned multiple times. These things are coming. Let my people go. I'm the Lord we see that these things are coming, and Pharaoh is given a fair warning. Now, if Pharaoh had just stopped and let the people go, end of story. But that's not what we see. We see that God allows the striking so that we can see who he is. And he takes away the frogs here so that we can see his mercy, so Pharaoh can see his mercy. Uh, that even though he didn't deserve to have the frogs taken away, even though that he was lying and saying that Israel will be allowed to go as you have commanded, even though he lied and said he would be obedient when God really knew that he wasn't going to be obedient, uh, this shows his mercy in a very strong way towards Pharaoh. Now, this type of mercy that we see is very different from the mercy that we receive as, as being part of God's people, of having salvation. It, it was a temporary mercy, obviously, because we have uh, several more plagues to go through. And it was only in this specific point of time. So the removal of the frogs, the temporary of the na play, nature of all the plagues, uh, minus the last one, showcases God's mercy to Egypt and to Pharaoh. And while this was a dialed-down version, like I said, uh, it's important to see that. And it, even more when we consider God's foreknowledge of these events, how we knew how Pharaoh would harden his heart, how he was lying, how the people of Israel were not leaving after this plague, and he still agreed to take away the frogs. We see an even greater picture. And this is, this is really what it means for us to have God's mercy as well, that even though he foreknew all the sins that we would commit, that we have committed, and all the sins that we would continue to commit, he still agrees to save us. He still sent his son to save us and to give us salvation. 
that even though he foreknew all the sins, the evil, the rebellion, he was still rich in mercy in deciding it was right to save us, his people. Now, at this point, uh, Pharaoh has recognized he's seen God's power, he's seen the love, he's seen the mercy, the gracious God, and he's also seen a picture of the wrath that is to come. Because if he knows that Pharaoh, uh, that God has been correct so far in the plagues, he will continue to be correct in all the other plagues that he has threatened, the things that are to come. And so, he starts to recognize God's power in these things and starts to see him. Uh, look with me at verse 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So by calling Moses and Aaron here uh, to him to get rid of the plagues, he's showing two things. One, that his magicians and his people are powerless to stop it. And I think it's kind of a funny picture because he says, Hey, what are you, what are you magicians going to do about the plagues? And they said, Check this out, and made more frogs appear just making the plagues worse and worse and worse. So he calls Moses and Aaron to come solve his problem. And two, he calls them to pray for him, uh, to ask for this solution for him, because he recognizes God's the only one able to take away the plagues. And now, at first, this seems like it would be a good thing that Pharaoh is asking Moses and Aaron to pray for him so that he can... uh, have the frogs taken away. He's coming to understand God. And don't get me wrong, it is a good thing that we pray for one another. We did it at the beginning this morning. Our lives should be marked by praying for one another. But our entire prayer life should not consist of only others praying for us. We have the honor, we have the privilege, we have the accessibility to God to pray to him for ourselves. But this isn't what Pharaoh does. He doesn't say, uh, let me pray with you. He asks Moses and Aaron, plead with the Lord for me. He's asking for them to do this for him. So as he recognizes the power, the might, uh, the things that God can do, taking away these frogs, the salvation for his people, uh, he sees all these things, but he denies wanting the presence of the Lord. He asks for the gifts, for the help, but says, I want to keep you over here. I want to keep you uh, with Moses and Aaron and with the Israelites. I want to keep me separate from you, God. And it isn't like he didn't understand who God was. It wasn't like Pharaoh just, uh, it was just going over his head as the plagues were happening. No, we see in this passage, if you look at it, um, he uses the direct name for God. He says, Jehovah, plead with Jehovah to take away these frogs for me. So he knows who God is. He, he starts to recognize these things. And I think that the, the faith that he shows here is very, uh, it's, it should be heartbreaking. If this is the faith that we have, that we show that we are okay with these things uh, for ourselves, then this is heartbreaking. And this is what Charles Spurgeon wrote concerning uh, Pharaoh's faith, and we should have the quote up here. It's a little lengthier. Um, There is a measure of faith which goes to increase a man's condemnation, since he ought to know that if what he believes is true, then the proper thing is to pray himself. It would have been a wonderfully good sign if Pharaoh had said, Join with me, O Moses and Aaron, while I pray unto Jehovah that he may take the frogs from me. But no, he had only a condemning faith which contended itself with other men's prayers. Pharaoh did not love God enough to want to be in his presence. He did not want to be in a relationship with him. 
He only wanted to get rid of a few frogs. He only wanted for Egypt to go back to being peaceful, to the gods of Egypt to go back to being his gods, to being the only one here, to being Pharaoh and king, the all-powerful. He didn't want God to come in. But we see that prayer is our great privilege and that Jesus is more than someone that can, is just here to take away a few frogs from us. He, did, he died so that he could take away our sins, so that we could come to know him, so that we could desire God and desire this relationship with him. He died so that we may come to know the Father in the right way that he wants us to, not through the work of another, not through the prayers of another, but through this direct link that we have with him. So let's keep going. Uh, so far in the story, we see that the magicians had been able to stop these plagues. So if we look at verses 18 and 19, uh, it says, The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So this is where we start to see the, the plagues are kind of ramping up, which seems kind of funny to me, uh, because now turning all the water you can drink, turning to blood. In the middle of a desert, this seems like it would be much, much worse than a bunch of gnats. Um, and it was kind of funny, because as I was writing this, we had, you know, those little fruit flies to get in your house during the summertime. I was trying to write this, focusing, and they kept flying in my nose. And I was like, okay, so maybe this, this plague is worse than you would think. Um, so we start to see that, that the power of God is starting to ramp up, that they are unable to reproduce the gnats as they had been able to reproduce the first few plagues. And this is because the, the, the power they had been using, the power of Satan, the power of the enemy is starting to run out. God's power is overcoming this power in such a big, easy way. It says that the magicians recognize that this is the finger of God, that with just God's finger, he has been able to uh, destroy uh, what we believed. He's been able to put a stop to what we can do. He is, his little finger is better than all of the power that this powerful nation, the so-called powerhouse of the day, had in their reserves. That by uh, saying that this is the finger of God, they are starting to recognize his power. While the magicians, yes, they did recognize the power of God, they were stepped behind Pharaoh. They didn't understand that this was Jehovah. They still called him uh, Elohim, which means just a basic word they could have used for little God, for one of their gods. So it's interesting how they start to see some things Pharaoh does, but not all the things that they needed to see. And what we see is that the Pharaoh and the magicians had this important job to play in Egypt. They were supposed to be the religious leaders. They were supposed to be his advisors. They were supposed to be uh, the experts to the people about the gods of Egypt. Uh, they especially helped Pharaoh in getting to the afterlife and things like this. And so by, by saying, Pharaoh, you should turn, by saying, uh, this is too much for us, and by Pharaoh not listening to this, he's showing how hard his heart really has gotten, how he has really stepped away and turned himself away from understanding who God is, because he was, his, his heart had hardened to the point where he didn't even want to listen to his number one guys. He didn't want to listen to the people that were there to instruct him and help him understand who, who uh, these gods were supposed to be. He completely turned away from them. And so we start to see how hard Pharaoh's heart had really gotten. 
And if we look at the Hebrew word for this, uh, the Hebrew meaning for this word, this hardness of heart, it's uh, becoming bad, becoming heavy and burdensome. And it always means this in a bad way. It's exclusively meant to mean something bad. So we see that Pharaoh's heart is turning worse. He's seen the power, the mercy, the love, the grace, all these things that God has come to show him, but he still turns and chooses to make his heart hardened. He still hardens his heart in response to all these things that God has shown him. So turn with me to Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28, and we'll start to see a picture of what this means for us and how uh, what, what the promise is for us to understand. That has, uh, we are in the same boat as Pharaoh, what God promises to do for his people. So Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. You see the emphasis there? The I will do this for you. The I will take away your hardened heart. I will take away uh, your heart of stone. This is God making these promises to us that he is the one uh, that takes away our hearts of stone and gives us instead a heart of flesh. But this is where the, the part of the story that gets difficult for me to understand, the part that when I get reading here in my Bible, my chronological Bible plan or whatever, uh, this is the part that stops me. Uh, that as I'm reading this, uh, I, I think to myself, Pharaoh or Israel or David or whoever it may be, this, this is obvious. God is showing you who he is. He is showing you, um, I am the Lord. There is no one like me in the land. And to me, it seems so obvious. Like, why are they not getting this? Are you kidding me, guys? What are you doing? And that's usually when my own sin of disobedience, when my own a doubt or sins comes hopping in kind of like a frog. And this is when the Spirit nudges me and says, hey man, this is you. You have been here. You have done all of these things. So when we read these stories of disobedience and doubt and turning away and hardening of hearts, this is really to be a warning sign to us to not be like Pharaoh, to not allow our hearts to be hardened in response to God showing us who he is. And that's really the point of the plagues, that God wants to make himself known to us. He wants to show us who he is, and he, and he wants to soften our hearts. He's the one that softens our hearts in a way so that we can come to understand him. <clears throat> and that's the whole point, to be like Moses and Aaron, uh, who believed God. They believed God when he said that the staff would turn into a snake, that the water would turn into blood, that the gnats would come. They believed God when he said all of these things. So we must believe God when he says that he wants to soften our hearts. And this is where that that caveat comes back in. 
that the only hope that we have in softening our hearts and responding rightly to God is only through his grace. It is only through the things that he offers us. This is, and this is the God that he's showing us to be in the plagues. Uh, one that is judgment, he is wrathful, but he is also loving and gracious, and he wants to extend that to us. And the way that he did that was through his son, through the death of his son uh, for us. Jesus, who came to live a perfect life, he came and died for our sins so that we can then have softened hearts, so that we can respond to God in a right way like we are supposed to. Jesus came so that we could learn uh, the thing that was natural to him, the thing that was easy for him to understand, that God is clearly above all the power of the earth, that he is better than the power of the earth, that he is better than the idols that we create, to teach us not to be like Pharaoh and forsaking the God who has shown himself to be so loving to us. And this is, this is an easy step for us to talk about, but this is really a hard thing to, uh, to do in practice. Uh, for the non-believers, for those that do not know Christ, this is uh, a little more wonky to talk about, uh, that we should not settle uh, to allow another party to pray for us, to understand who God is, that he is... Um, made himself available to us, that he is wanting you to know him and to believe in him and who he is and what he says he will do. And for the believers, this is even harder to do, to continuing casting off our idols, to continue uh, fleeing from idolatry, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, to turn away from all the things that our heart uh, looks at that we see in the world and to soften our heart to God, to respond in the way that he desires us to respond to him. And so as we enter this time of communion, as we uh, go into this time of remembering who God is, uh, I want to call you to that. uh, If you don't know who God is, just to to sit and to think about these things, to think about uh, who he has shown you who he is and how he is and who he is for us. And if if you have any questions about that, we'd love to talk to you. The elders will be in the back. I'll be in the back. We'd love to pray for you and to talk with these things with you. But for the believers, that as we go to the table, as we remember all the things that God has done for us, his, his power and his mercy and his grace that he has given us, uh, continue resting in what he says he will do and believing that he will soften our hardened hearts, that he will continue to do these things just as he has promised. So as we go into this time, we'll, we'll pray, and then when you are ready, communion is open. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for all that you have given us and done for us. I thank you for your grace that you decided to have on us, that even though that we prefer our idols, that we prefer uh, the, the thing that you have created over you, Father, that even though we prefer the things that are lower in value to you, the ultimate worth, that you would still send your son to die for us. And I thank you for that. I thank you for giving us this understanding of who you are. And uh, I pray that you will help us respond with softened hearts, that you will soften our hearts so that we can come to know you and understand you and have this relationship with you and not just the gifts that that we, we see that you have, but that we understand that you are the gift, that you are the, the good thing that is brought to us, that you are not just the, the means to the end, but you are the end. You are our goal. You are our desire and what we should want. 
Father, I pray for these things that just as we go throughout our week that we will just remember this and remember who you are and what you have shown us. I thank you for all these things. Amen.